It was a Sunday afternoon, and this lady of refinement decided that she was going to take a stroll out in the, in the hill country near Balmoral in Scotland, where she was residing at the time. Now, a stroll there means a trek. The further she got from home, though the day had started nice and bright, it began to get a little gloomy. The clouds gathered, it started to drizzle, what the Scots call a fair, soft day. That means that the winds are not gale force and the rain is not pelting you in the face. But nonetheless, she was getting a little wet. She thought she'd better seek some help and she saw a little cottage there on the hillside and thought, I'll, I'll find help there. So she went up to the door of this place and knocked. After a few minutes, a little lady stooped over with age and dressed in black flung the door open. What do you want, she said. Well, as you can see, it's raining out here. I really need to borrow an umbrella, if I may. Well, I don't have an umbrella you can borrow. Now, shoo, get off my porch, leave me alone. And she slammed the door in the woman's face. Shocking behavior, even for a Scot. So this lady walked off the porch, down the path, lifted the latch on the gate, and as she did, the heavens opened and it poured. She ran again and knocked. Again, the little woman of the house came out. I told you I don't have anything for you. Now please go away and leave me alone. But I will be drenched by the time I get home if you don't help me, she said. So the lady stood and waited while the woman of the house went in. She rummaged around for a bit, and after some time she came out with this. Well, here, you can borrow this one, but I want it back today. <laughs> Thank you, she said, and made her way home, wet. A couple hours later, yet another knock on her door. This time when she opened her door, she saw standing before her a man dressed in royal livery, a gilt coach at the edge of her path, a purple cushion on his hand, and on top of that cushion, her old umbrella. Madam, he said, Her Majesty the Queen wishes to return to you your umbrella and extends to you her warmest appreciations for its use. The Queen? Oh, not the Queen. If only I'd known it was the Queen, I would have given her my best. I think it needs no explanation. <laughs> Here's the thing. We never really know who is standing right in front of us. But someday, we are going to stand before his majesty on high. We will give account for all that we have done or not done the attitude with which we responded to his call upon our lives, whatever that call was. It's time for us to reconsider and determine within our hearts and minds that we will not hand God the leftovers of our lives, but the very best we have to offer. I am what I would call an unlikely life. And let me explain that just a little bit to you. I was uh, raised in a family that was broken. And during its breaking, I broke. 
like many, I'm a broken person. There are things that have happened in my life where the little flicker of light was almost put out. Maybe you're like that. But God, by his grace, according to scripture, is one who takes the broken reed and refashions it and plays beautiful music from it. He does not crush the broken. And for that smoldering wick that's just about to go out, he trims the wick and fans the flame and we burn brightly so all the world can see that we have a God of grace and redemption who doesn't give up on anyone. Aren't you glad for that today? Well, my, um, my unlikely life is really one that is a yes life. Let me explain that just a moment, and then we're going to practice saying that little three-letter word because I think sometimes we struggle with it. It has been because of God's grace that a simple yes has given me a life I could never have dreamed of, ever. God wants us to join him in his eternal purposes, which I'm going to name as two this morning. One is to see all things restored, not destroyed. Two is to see all of his children come home. And that has filled my life throughout my life, particularly my mission's life. And I want to unpack that for you a little bit today. But because I said yes, I come now and look back at a path that was very unclear, very uneven, very uncertain, except that it was buried in God with a yes that I would not take back. So let's practice that just for a moment. On the count of three, let's see how well we do. One, two, three. Yes. Mediocre at best. One, two, three. Yes. And now like a whispered prayer. One, Whatever the Lord asks of you today, your response will be yes. Second Corinthians. Paul had a congregation, a church in Corinth, in Corinth that was filled with lots of troubles, let's say. But one thing that he celebrated with them and commended them for was the spirit of their generosity. Let me read it for you. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. Isn't that beautiful? You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion and through us your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs for the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. 
because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else and in their prayers for you. Their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given to you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. None of us owns anything. Everything we have is on loan. And God is the great, the great and eternal owner of it all. Well, I'm a mission story, and I believe you are too. Let's move on to that next slide. I'd like to talk to you a little bit about some holy influences in my life. And the first one is uh, one that means a great deal to me. It is, uh, it's a story that begins at the age of eight. Now, you might not believe it looking at me now that I was ever eight years old, uh, but I was, and my hair wasn't this color. Every one of these white hairs has a name attached. <laughs> I was an eight-year-old boy in a Sunday school class of eight-year-old boys, but I was taught by a woman who was 84. Now, let me ask you, who in their right mind as a pastor, would ever ask an 84-year-old woman to teach a class of 8-year-old boys? What was he thinking? And what was she thinking when she said yes to him? Because all of us who've been 8-year-old boys, if you've been one, raise your hand. There you go. We know that 8-year-old boys would rather be anywhere than where they are doing anything but what they're doing. Escape is our mode of operation. But Miss Dietrich was her name. She had a special way of ending that Sunday school class every Sunday morning. As she closed the lesson, she would walk over to the door. Now, she was a woman who was crippled with arthritis. She walked with the help of two cane sticks. But she would shuffle her way over to the door and open it ever so slightly. She would lean one arm against the door, drape her cane over her arm, and she would just wait there as she finished her prayer. Now, the end of this routine was that when she finished her prayer, she would raise her head and wink at us. Now, the problem with an 84-year-old woman who has a very wrinkled face is it was difficult to know who she was winking at. The wink was our, it was our signal to escape. We didn't know is it me or is it you? So we had a lot of mid-air collisions just about where the door was. But Miss Dietrich would stand there faithfully as the chaos calmed. And one by one, we were allowed to pass between her and the door frame under this gate or bridge, call it what you will. But just as we would get here, Miss Dietrich would drop around us, give us a big hug, and say, Johnny, you remember, 
Miss Dietrich will be praying for you every day this week. And with a little pat, off we go. I am in large measure who I am because of her. If you are a Sunday school teacher or ever asked to be one or to work with children or young people, I want to say to you today, when the opportunity comes, please say yes. You don't know the lives that you are impacting. You have no idea of the influence on those young lives. But it's your opportunity to contribute to the future of the kingdom of God on this earth while we linger, while we wait. And those young lives can become anything. And you will have had influence over them. Don't hesitate. Say yes. Carry out this noble work with dedication and fervor and passion and commitment and contribute to those young lives and you will be blessed because you did. Well, my mission story continues and let's move along to it. When I was nine years old, I had um, come to a place of accepting Christ during that eighth year of my life. It was on a Sunday very much like this. Our church met in a little musty duplex in Marietta, Georgia. We had wooden floors. It was a stuffy little place. And what I remember is that on this particular Sunday morning, just weeks after Easter, the pastor preached a service. I Honestly, I have no memory of it. I, I do not know what he said. I can't think of the content. But I know this, when he opened the altar, I felt my heart breaking. And I ran forward and flung myself over that old mourner's bench, as they called it. <laughs> and over the sound of my weeping and my own simple prayer for God to come and take control of this little life, I heard the clicking of two sticks and the shuffling of feet. I felt her gnarled hand on my head and heard her pray my name. Because of her and because of pastors who were faithful to speak the word, not knowing the outcome of any one of those messages, I'm here today. I owe so much to Miss Dietrich. I owe so much to my pastors. At the age of nine, I felt a call to ministry. I had no idea what that meant. But I said yes. It was on an evening service. When I stood up from the altar, the pastor came forward. He hugged me. He said, what did God do for you tonight? And I said, well, I think God's calling me into the ministry. Oh, he was so excited. And I looked up at him and I said, but I don't know what that means. <laughs> and he said, well, Johnny, here's the thing. If God is calling you, he's not just calling you for there and then. He's calling you for here and now. 
and he took me under his wing, a nine-year-old boy. He took me on hospital visits and allowed me to pray with the sick and the dying. He believed that the prayers of children make a difference. He had me read scripture aloud in church. I was terrified. <laughs> Wouldn't believe that I used to be so shy I couldn't open my mouth. He, uh, he walked with me. He discipled me. He mentored me. He taught me how to minister from that day. He said to me and to the congregation, isn't it wonderful what God has done in Johnny's life? I'll tell you what. In two weeks' time on a Sunday evening, you're going to preach your first sermon. <laughs> oh, my. Two weeks passed. I did the best I could do. I stood behind the pulpit, which was so tall no one could see me. So they had to pause the service for a moment and get an old crate and put it behind the pulpit. I climbed up and I could just barely see my audience. I took my text from Philippians chapter 2. Stand tall and straight in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Now let me ask you, what nine-year-old boy has any idea what that means? I did not. But I believed that tall and straight sounded so much better than crooked and perverse. And I wanted my life to be that. Even if I couldn't see over the pulpit. That sermon lasted three minutes. <laughs> and at the end of it, the pastor came up, gave me a big hug, and said, didn't Johnny do great? That was wonderful. He looked at me and he said, do you think you could do any better? I gulped hard. And he answered his own question, I believe you can. So in two weeks, you're going to preach the same sermon from the same passage but the difference is, between now and then, I'm going to help you. We're going to figure out what Paul is actually going through. Where is he when he's writing this? It was like a hermeneutics class. <laughs> I didn't even know what hermeneutics was back then. We worked together. He said, we're going to find some great stuff to share. Great stuff. So the two weeks passed, I stood behind the pulpit again on my little box. The sermon lasted for nine minutes. Now I promise you I'm not going to incrementally get longer by the year for this morning's message. But I have to say, without the care and love, and nurture of pastors who were faithful to their calling for my sake, I would not be here. They walked with me through my brokenness and participated in my healing. They fanned the flame of faith in my life. So if you're a pastor and this congregation has great pastors, you've got a wonderful team. I commend you. God wants to do something incredible here, if you hadn't noticed. But if this is your task, do it well. When some young person comes to you and says, I think God may be calling me, take it seriously. Join them, help them, 
nurture, bless them with your time and your energies, they will be an extension of this church for the rest of their lives. You see that map up there. There's an arrow missing from the graphic, and I'm sorry for that, but I started in the green section. What is that called? North America, the United States, from Atlanta, Georgia. I ended up answering God's call to missions and going across to the blue, which is the 14 time zones of the Eurasia region. I went for two years that turned into 38. And I do not regret a day of it. Yes will never disappoint you because God will always keep his promises. These holy influences don't end with my pastor. They also, they're joined by my grandparents and my mother. My grandparents were Quaker ministers all their lives, both excellent preachers. But my grandmother had a keen insight into scripture. She would allow me to sit at her knee with the Bible open and we would have big debates and conversations about what the scripture meant. How could I apply it in my young life? But she and my grandfather had a phrase that they used to say to me, and I didn't really understand it at the time. They said, remember, Johnny, you are the answer to the prayers of generations gone before you. An odd thing to say, I think. When I decided to go overseas, my mother, a saint if ever one lived, said to me, before you go, I want you to vow, we are going to make a covenant together that you will never come home just because I call you. You will not come home because I need you. When God releases you from the field, then and only then, can you come home? We made that covenant. I kept that covenant. And by God's grace, he allowed me to be back here in ministry when she passed. People didn't understand why I stayed away. I would come on the occasional visit, but we had a covenant. She prayed for me. My grandparents prayed for me. But... I want to tell you as ministers, as a church, if you, if you begin to live your lives in these mentoring, discipling, contrib contributing ways to the lives of the young in your congregation, God may well call people from this church to go elsewhere, and it is a cost to you. But I can tell you that everywhere I went on that 14 time zone Eurasia region, for all the years that I was gone, and indeed today, I carry those influences and I carry my home church with me everywhere I go. I wouldn't be here without them.
this idea of going overseas was a little frightening. But I found that God walked ahead of me. He walked beside me. He protected behind me. <laughs> and he carried me through. And it's interesting when God is doing that, fear disappears. People would say to me, aren't you afraid to go to that country? And many places I've been were very dangerous. I always said, no, when I said yes to God, I became his problem, not the other way around. I'm trusting he's going to take care of me, so off I go. But that phrase of my grandparents used to haunt me, you are the answer to the prayers of generations gone before you. Let me just unpack this very quickly. In 1992, we received in the Eurasia Regional Office a postcard from a Catholic Marianol missioner. It said, I have met a man in Kishurganj, Bangladesh. He says that he is a Nazarene, that he was ordained into the ministry by a man named Chapman. Those of you who've been around a while, you'll know that's a long time ago. He has faithfully served the church and God in this country since before the partitioning of India, which occurred in 1947. In the 1930s, all Nazarene missionaries, all missionaries, had to leave those countries. He said, he is a very old man. You need to find him. You need to meet him. You need to hear his story. He is one of yours. And let me tell you, he is a saint. So I was sent on a mission to locate this fine, this fine fellow. I traveled many days. It was a rough journey. But when I got to the gate of his family compound, he was sitting under the veranda of a tin-roofed house on an old chair. And as I walked through the gate, he stood and through thick glasses stared at me, walked forward to the edge of that porch, pointed his finger at me and said, I knew you'd come. He had been ministering in that lonely place for 60 years alone. Many times beaten, several times buried alive and stoned, treated like dirt by those who did not want to hear the message of hope and holiness that he carried with him as he bicycled through the backwaters of Bangladesh. But there was no resentment in his tone, no regrets in his voice. His testimony was true. He was a wonderful man. He and his family had built, years before, a little prayer cottage at the corner of their family compound. And every morning and every night, they would go down there and pray this simple prayer. Oh God, please let today be the day that the church of the Nazarene and the message of scriptural holiness comes back to Bangladesh. And at night, they would go back and pray, if it wasn't today, please let it be tomorrow. 
60 years. I don't know whether he thought he'd seen me in a vision or a dream, but when I walked through his gate, he knew me. And I was the first Nazarene to meet him for 60 years. He'd said a yes that cost him everything. Now at that time, and this is really quite incredible, that was 1993, there were no Nazarene churches and no members in Bangladesh. That did not last for long. It began to grow very quickly. In 2010, there were 1,200 churches and over 83,000 members. Move forward 14, or four more years. In 2014, there were 2,658 churches and 141,682 members. And that year, they planted a new church every day of the year. Early in that work, a group of, uh, let's say, advisors, wise advisors, I'm sure, from the West came to Bangladesh to help the local Bangladeshis know how to build the church and grow the church and plant the church and be the church. And they said, we think if you could, if you could grow to like a thousand churches, you could pretty well cover this country and be a really great influence on this country. And the Bangladeshi leaders who were there, move to the next slide, they were, they were taken aback. But they, they sat patiently, they listened carefully, they were attentive, they were respectful. But when all this presentation was done, one of the Bangladeshi leaders looked up and with tears coursing his cheeks, he said, but sir, there are 69,000 villages in our country that we know of. Which ones are we supposed to leave out? Clearly their heart and mind, <laughs> their spirit, their effort was to see everyone come to Christ. Samad Chowdhury believed that holiness was the answer to his nation's woes, that it would heal the country, that it would it would change the nation forever. I agree with that. Think of what holiness lived out well and true in this nation would do to this nation. How many is enough? Well, really not until we're all home. On occasion, I had many different tasks and roles to play on the Eurasia region. I won't go into details about all of them, but let me just say there were times when I was wearing too many hats, like so many missionaries, and I had a hard time juggling them. <laughs> but on occasion, I was given the opportunity to go and conduct district assemblies when the general superintendent, it was considered too dangerous for him to go there. On this particular day, I will never forget it. We had traveled in the midst of a Hajj, which is a Muslim uh, celebration, a Muslim pilgrimage to a holy site. Millions more from all around the world had come to Bangladesh at that same time, and we had traveled through the night. By the way, this outfit, in case you're wondering, I'm not just strange, this is a traditional 
Lungi and Kurta from Bangladesh. So it represents the people I'm trying to talk to you about now. Um, my colleague and I had been ushered about four hours before dawn into a little hut and given two mats to get some rest on and we slept for a couple hours and a knock came and it was a, a bucket of water for us to do our morning wash <laughs> and breakfast was a cup of tea and a biscuit not the kind with gravy but you know a cookie and we were told to wait until we were called out we did when the door opened between this little hut and a large tabernacle that had been constructed about 150 feet away. Hundreds of people lined that path. They were waving tree branches and throwing flowers in our path. Some of the women were taking off their silk scarves and throwing them on the path in front of us. It was so humbling. But when we got to the door to the tabernacle, two little women came and knelt before us and untied our shoes, took off our shoes and our socks and washed our feet and kissed our feet and welcomed us on the holy ground. The whole day was one of celebration. God had done amazing things. The church was exploding everywhere. At the end of the district assembly, we were ushered outside and told to take our seats under the trees. Now this gets quite interesting. We were being given a feast. And it was a strange feast unlike any other that I've ever had or participated in. The story. Several months earlier, a pestilence had hit in one of the tribal areas. Nazarene Compassionate Ministries, leaders of the church in Bangladesh, went and tried to see what they could do to help this tribe. The pestilence lifted. It had impacted the young and the old. And so moved and so transformed by this compassionate, loving ministry, the chief of this tribe came to faith in Christ. Like so many tribal areas, when the chief comes to faith, pretty much everybody in the tribe joins him. <laughs> so they were all there. He wanted to celebrate a feast. And so it was decided that it would be perfect timing for them to host the feast of the district assembly, and so they came. But weeks before that assembly, months before that assembly, he had sent out a runner to every local family in their local dwellings. And every week, these runners would take bowls and they would collect a pinch of rice from every family. That pinch of rice would be added to a store when the time of the district assembly came, they had gathered three ox carts full of rice, loaded down with their implements for cooking and their pots and their pans and their 
spatulas and all the vegetables and then dragging three goats behind <laughs> these ox carts and they walked for three and a half days and nights to get there, to cook, to prepare, to serve, to bless the assembly with this feast. I noticed that throughout this feast there was a little old man sitting under one tree. He seemed to be in charge. He did things with his eyes and with his hands and with his head that made me think they're paying attention to him. I wanted to know more about him. I discovered he was the chief. When we had all finished our feast, those who had served us had opportunity to eat. I asked to meet this old man, and he said this to me, we did not know that we were dead, but when we met the Nazarene, we were made alive, and this is our resurrection feast. Now it could be argued that they were too new to the faith to know what a resurrection feast should look like. <laughs> or they were too poor to give anything, or they were too backwatery <laughs> to come into a great assembly of over 800 people and have the opportunity to host such a thing. But they did it faithfully, well and true. And God changed all of us who were there because of them. Generosity is based not on geography. It isn't even based on economics. Generosity is something that wells up within the heart of a person who knows they were dead but are now alive. And it's all about sharing that life, representing that good news to everyone. joining God in his eternal purposes to see all things restored and to see all of his children come home. Now here, we are going to join God in his, in his eternal purposes this morning. You've got a little bag. They're not all the same. They're not all even. They're not, some are bigger pinches than others, <laughs> as it should be. Some only have one or two kernels of rice in them. But when Mark, Pastor Mark, comes and tells you where you're going to place your commitment cards, I'd like for you to bring that bag of rice with you. And I'd like for you to just place it here in this basket. A symbol of your participation with those you do not know in places you cannot go but who are family. <laughs> we are in this together because God's grace is eternally optimistic. We are in this together because there's no one on the planet he does not see as his child. We are in this together because we are called to go or to stay. But whatever he is calling us to today, our answer is yes. yes.